know that the Ohio State Highway Patrol is part of the Department of Public Safety, but did you know there are nine divisions within DPS? Each one is dedicated to protecting Ohioans in very different ways. Hi, I'm Carol Morgan, and on this inaugural episode of Safe and Sound, we're going to introduce you to these divisions and tell you about each one's unique role in keeping Ohioans safe. But first, let's get to know the man who leads the Department of Public Safety, Director Andy Wilson. Hey, Carol. Good morning. It's great to see you. Great to see you, too. So Governor DeWine appointed you to be director of the Department of Public Safety in December of 2022, and you started your new position in January of 2023. Uh, Tell me about the governor's passion for public safety. Listen, I, I believe with all of my heart, and I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to work uh, with Governor DeWine over the past four years as, as part of his administration. And then prior to that, I, I worked with him just a little bit when I was a, an elected county prosecutor and he was the attorney general. They, they'd come in and help with an investigation from time to time, or they'd need um, something over at BCI and we'd come over and, and we'd help out um, by, by serving on a committee or a council. So I, I had the opportunity to work with him a little bit uh, prior to him being elected governor. So I, I knew a little bit about him, but man, over the last four years, I've really been able to, to, to work in the trenches with the governor. And, and I got to tell you, with, without a doubt, I believe that Governor DeWine is probably the in, in the history of governors of Ohio, he will go down as the one who's probably most dedicated to public safety. And if you think about it, um, it, it just makes perfect sense. You know, it, the... His background is, is as a prosecutor, that was his first real job. And I think uh, working in the trenches, fighting crime, uh, helping victims, I, I think that probably planted a seed uh, or a passion in his heart uh, for helping to keep his community safe. And that's just carried on throughout his career. And again, uh, if you look at government as a whole, really the, the, probably the most important function of government is to keep its citizens safe. And it, it just makes sense because if we don't have safe communities, none of the governor's other initiatives will thrive. If we don't have safe schools, if, if our kids and, and our teachers don't feel safe in and around their school buildings, then it doesn't matter how great our educational initiatives are. They, they just won't take root. And the same thing in a, in a business community or, or a downtown business area. If, if, this, if a center city or a, a business district isn't safe and, and patrons are getting mugged or people are getting shot and people are scared to go into that district, it doesn't matter what kind of economic initiatives we put in there or what we do to try to build up business. People just won't come. So we have to we have to make our community safe in order for everything else to thrive. Director Wilson, you like to say that you've been dedicated to public safety pretty much your entire life. Tell me about that. So listen, you know, in in your life or in people's lives, a lot of times there are experiences or events or things, I guess, that that happen that shape uh, shape them. You know, it, 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 like I said earlier with the governor, it plants a seed that then one day grows into a full passion for something. For me, uh, when I was a kid, my dad was a police officer. And, uh, you know, it was, it was such a great experience. Not only was he a, a police officer in a, in a small village, uh, but, but he went all in and really kind of teaching uh, myself and my two brothers about what that means, what what public service and, and keeping your community means. And when I go out and I talk to, to law enforcement across the state, when I talk to anybody in the, the public safety space and probably in any job at all, I, I always stress the importance of including your family in what you do. It, it, it is incredibly important for your, um, you know, your wife, your husband, your partner, your kids to understand the nature of your job and what you do day to day. And if you don't, a lot of times, if you don't do a good job of fostering that understanding, then your job becomes a wedge between you and your family. And, and we certainly don't want that. You know, we, we, we want our, our folks, especially in the, the first responder world, to, to be happy at home and happy on, on the job. So we really encourage family. And again, I was incredibly fortunate as a, as a child to have a dad who went all in. So I, I, I was probably eight or nine years old, and I got my 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 first opportunity to serve in a public safety role as a crossing guard at, at the school. Oh, that's cool. And my dad, my dad again, he 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 played it he played it so perfectly as uh, with, with respect to stressing the importance of public service, and he saw this as again 
allowing me to have a, an opportunity to experience what public service feels like. So he told me, I remember him telling me, hey, hey, look, boy, you know, this is this is important. This is important. And, and if you don't do your job right and you don't pay attention and 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 you're not on point when you're you're doing this job, then you know somebody could get hurt. Somebody could get hurt. So he he did a good job of really kind of planting that seed with respect to the passion for for helping to protect your friends, your family, your community. But then he took it a step further. Uh, he, he would encourage us, again, to understand the job and feel like we were participating in keeping the community safe. So he, I, re- I remember this very distinctly. He was a, a police officer and he would tell me, uh, you know, he always, I always carried, when I was on duty, I always carried a notepad and, and, a, and a pen or a pencil, which again, across the, the first responder community is, is a must as part of your, your, your uniform. Mm-hmm. But I would, uh, I would go on shift for my, my, I say go on shift. I, I would, after school, <laughs> be a, a crossing guard. And he would tell me, Hey, look, Hey, look, boy, listen, um, you know, we, we're running a little short staff. In, in the village these days. And we got a lot of reckless drivers out there and, and there's, there's a lot of people who are putting kids and, and, and our citizens at, at risk. And I need your help. I need your help. When, when, when you're on shift and, and you're not actively walking somebody across the street, I need to, you to keep your eye out for speeders and, and reckless drivers. And then, you know, I want you to write their license plate numbers down and then after I get home from work, you know, I'll have you re- report out. So I would do that. I would I would sit at my corner, and when I wasn't crossing people across the street, and again, I'm eight or nine years old at this time, I would I would watch for what I thought were reckless drivers, and I, mean, I had no gauge in what that looked like. I had no <laughs> radar gun or no official training, so I'm sure people were going like 15 miles an hour in my school zone, and they were getting their license plate uh, written down. So I would write I would write the list of who I thought was reckless or anything that I thought was suspicious. You know, he taught us the situational awareness of uh, of looking out for suspicious activity, and I would write this, uh, these information, this information down. And at the end of the evening, you know, before I'd go to bed, he'd come in. He'd be like, "Hey, boy, did you, did you, did you get any uh, reckless drivers? Did you get any speeders today?" And I'd report out. And and here's the, he taught me the phonetic alphabet as well. So you know, I, I I'd give him a license plate number, Nora Four, Nora Henry Nine Seven, something like that. And I'd give it to him the way a, a police officer or first responder would report phonetically. And I'd give him the list of of what I had seen, what I observed, and what I thought their transgressions were. <laughs> and again, he'd take that list and he'd, he'd say, hey, look, son, good work. You, you did a great job today. And because of what you're doing out there, you're keeping your friends, you're keeping this community safe. And and I'm sure he took that note or took that list, went in the other room, you know, I, I tucked me into bed, went in the other room, laughed, got through that, that, that list away and laughed with my mom, I'm sure. But... Um, Man, it was it was such a a good lesson in the the importance of serving and, and the importance of of helping to keep people safe. And that I, that seed was planted in me. And and you know, as I worked my way through college and and started to look at what I was going to do in life, uh, you know, I think that that passion for serving uh, kind of came to the surface. And as part of that, um, you served in the National Guard. I did. And I think that that is really, that was really my first opportunity to serve uh, my country, uh, not just my community, but my, my country uh, on a higher level. And I was, I was 17 years old and wasn't really sure how I was going to pay for college or what exactly I was going to do. We, we didn't come. Uh, we didn't come from a lot of money or anything like that. So, you know, I, I wanted to help out. And I had a friend who had an older brother who was in the guard and we were hanging out one night at their place. And he he said, hey, look, what, what are you going to do after you graduate? How are you going to pay for school? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm going to college, but I don't know what I don't know. I hadn't thought about that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I'll just take loans. And he said, hey, look, I got a better answer for you. You know, if, if you join the National Guard, they'll pay. Back then it was 60 percent. Now it's 100 uh, percent. But they'll they'll pay for 60 percent of your tuition. It's a great deal that you'll get the GI Bill. You'll And so I I was like, yeah, that, that, that sounds great. And, you know, I, 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 I like the idea of, uh, you know, have my school paid for. But then I. Uh, I, I I joined and I went off to basic and I really had the opportunity to serve. And that was the first time that I really on a, on an official level served a purpose that was higher than my own 
juvenile high school <laughs> selfish right. wants, needs, and desires. <laughs> so, um, so and it was great. And again, it lit the flame uh, inside of me. You know, so the seed was planted. This lit the flame, and I knew at that point. I'm like, you know, I, I, I want to serve. I, I, I was pretty sure that I would never go into the private sector. Although I haven't, you know, you don't completely rule anything out. But right. I, I knew that I wanted to serve the the, the public at that point. And taking the path that you're on now, that wasn't your original plan. It wasn't. So I I liked history. I liked government, like a lot of lawyers do. I liked history, like government. I thought that I was going to be um, a government teacher. I, I wanted to be a government teacher. And, you know, I I was a mediocre student at best in high school. I never had really thought about going to law school because, frankly, I didn't think I had the grades or could achieve the grades or whatnot. Joined the Army, um, and the Army taught me discipline. It taught me um, that I could achieve at a, at a higher level. Literally, the old commercials, be all you could be. Um, yeah, I bought into it, and when I went to college, uh, you know, I, I academically did very well in undergrad. And it was easy compared to what I had done in the army you know, as far as digging foxholes sure. and whatnot. And <laughs> I was going to be a government teacher and a coach and, and I wanted to take that route. So as part of as part of my being a government teacher, I did an internship with um, the Clark County Prosecutor's Office in Springfield. It was a, the only government agency that, you know, I, I knew at the time. Because that's where you grew up. I did. Yep. Yeah. So I'm from mm-hmm. Springfield. I had, I had grown up in, in Clark County. My family knew, my grandpa knew that the prosecutor at the time. So I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll go over and I'll, I'll do an internship. Internship, and they let me come over, and it was it was an amazing experience. As a matter of fact, they put me with a a young assistant prosecutor who had just graduated law school. I think he was probably 25, 26 years old, and he was he was very energetic. He was very passionate about fighting crime, and I got to hang out with him. And there was a there was a case that that really altered my life. Uh, and he was trying this case in juvenile court, and it was against a juvenile who had purse snatched from an elderly lady and when he went to grab the purse off of her shoulder he punched her in the jaw and broke her jaw and then knocked her down and took the purse so he was arrested he was brought into court and we were in this trial and i I had the opportunity to watch this young assistant prosecutor present that case and the the juvenile defendant took the stand and i watched the assistant cross-examine him and he just was really going at him pretty hard look you 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 hit that lady. You knew you were going to hurt her when you hit her. You know, you knew that you could cause this kind of harm. It just was really going after her. And as I sat there and I watched that, I was like, you know, that's what I want to do. That That's mm-hmm. absolutely what I want to do. So I went back probably the next week, changed my major and to a to a pre-law criminal justice. I knew at that time that my grades were probably good enough to that if I wanted to go to law school, I could. Mm-hmm. And these mentors at the prosecutor's office were telling me, hey, look, you can do this. You know, you'd be great. You know, we, we'd love to have you on the team someday. And you know, I, I ultimately ended up doing it. Now, what's interesting about that is in order to get into law school, you have to write something called a personal statement. Mm-hmm. And the personal statement uh, is where you talk about why you wanted to go to law school. And I talked about sitting in court and watching that case and how it had inspired me to one day want to become an, a prosecutor. So I wrote that, got into law school, finished law school, end up coming back to the Clark County Prosecutor's Office. I'm serving as an assistant prosecuting attorney, and I'm prosecuting. We specialized in our caseloads over there. So I'm prosecuting all the crimes involving violence against adult women. And I prosecute a case where a guy broke into his girlfriend's house, kicked the door in, and and basically drug her out, beat her up, and... It was the same guy who I had watched when he was a juvenile. He had graduated to adult court. So I got the opportunity. It came full circle. Yeah. I got the, the opportunity to prosecute the guy who inspired me to go to, to, to law school. That's that's amazing. So how much time did you spend in the Clark County Prosecutor's Office? So I, again, it was very fortunate to have the opportunity to go to Clark County Prosecutor's Office in 2002 is where I started. So I graduated law school, spent a little time at Montgomery County Prosecutor's Office, and then went to Clark County Prosecutor's Office in 2002. I was an assistant prosecuting attorney 
in that office from 2002 until 2011 as an assistant. Uh, and in that time, I had the opportunity, again, we did something called vertical prosecution over there. That's where you're assigned to a subject matter. So it might be drugs. It might be uh, violence against adult women. Uh, I did, I specialized in violence against adult women and cases involving uh, violence against children. So when I did the, the cases involving the, the violence against adult women, typically on that caseload, about 80% was domestic violence, physical violence type cases, and then a 20% were sexual assault type cases. When I went to, I, I then transitioned over to try the cases or handle the cases involving violence against children, that number flipped. And it was uh, 80% of my cases then were uh, sexual assault or, or child exploitation type cases, and 20% were extreme physical abuse cases. Oh, so it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, it was it was a it was a challenging but incredibly rewarding docket. And I, I worked with a great team of professionals over there. We had a, a multidisciplinary team, which is really kind of the gold standard on how to handle those cases. And it was just it was incredibly rewarding to to be able to go in and fight for those kids, who a lot of times didn't have any other voice to, to, to fight for them. So it was, again, talk about those seeds for serving your, your community and, and protecting people. It just, they were all coming to fruition uh, through my ability to do those types of cases. So I did that until, let's see, 2011, I became the, the county prosecutor. So my boss at the time retired, which allowed me to become the, the, the appointed prosecutor. I was able to run and get elected. And I, in, in addition to running the office, uh, I still I took a lot of pride in, in being a prosecutor who still went to court. So I, I still like to go in and handle uh, trials of cases that uh, were high profile or that were important to the community. So it was, it was just a great experience. I stayed there through 2018. At the end of 2018, I was to the point where I tried every kind of case I could possibly try. Uh, I was really good in my relationships with the, the local law enforcement, the, the local community groups. It just was a great spot. I probably could have sat there forever. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a great, it was a great position. Um, but I, I, I was bored and I was comfortable. And what I found in life is when you're comfortable or where you're too comfortable, you're not really pushing yourself. So exactly right. I, I began to look for other adventures, other challenges. And I was very fortunate. The, the attorney general DeWine at the time was elected to become the governor. And he wanted uh, a prosecutor on staff to kind of keep their fingers on the pulse of some of the criminal justice issues. Uh, he, obviously, he's going to be busy doing all of the other stuff that comes with uh, the governor's job. And I was fortunate to, to go into a position that was titled Senior Advisor for Criminal Justice Policy for the governor. And really, it was just, again, an amazing experience. What what I talk about when I when I talk to friends or colleagues about it, it was – it was like being in a PhD program for public policy in higher level government operations. And I was incredibly fortunate. I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have served with Governor DeWine because he, he just to, 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 be behind, to, to be behind the scenes with him as he navigated some of these tough decisions that he had to make during that first term and to, to really kind of see his leadership style and learn from that leadership style and be able to copy that uh, leadership style and then be able to help create initiatives that we then took back to help communities uh, to make communities safe. It was just it was an incredible experience. And then add on top of that, the opportunity to work with law enforcement and, and first responders throughout the entire state, um, the, the, the sheriff's association, the chiefs of police association, individual departments and the troopers. It, it was it was really kind of a I thought it was a dream spot at the time. It was a dream spot. Uh, I, I didn't realize that I actually was going to end up just in at the end of the first term in what really is a dream spot. And that's this position right here. Yeah, that really laid the perfect groundwork for you to take over here at the Department of Public Safety. It, it did. Listen, I, I would not have been ready four years ago. I, I, I just wouldn't have. Uh, you know, the, the four years of learning how state government works, the, the four years of 
understanding the, the 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 governor's passion and his leadership style and the the four years of just developing relationships across the state laid the foundation that I think uh, ultimately prepared me for for this position and it, it it's been it's been great it's been absolutely fantastic. I started working at DPS just a few weeks really after you did. And first of all, I have to agree, this is just a phenomenal group of people, a great place to work. Um, I came here from local media and, you know, I thought I was very familiar with state government and all its branches, but I didn't even realize until before I before I came here that there were nine different divisions within the Department of Public Safety and each one really covers every single element, everything that keeps Ohioans safe, like every aspect of safety for Ohioans. Look, it, it, it's fascinating. Uh, and just some of my observations, you know, I, I obviously the last four years I had the opportunity to work with public safety and learn about everything that they did. But I, I would I would venture to guess that the average uh, person at, at the on the streets has no idea uh, really, uh, how far reaching uh, the, the, the Department of Public Safety is with respect to the mission of keeping you safe every day. And it's, it's, just, it's just a great organization. And uh, one of the things that, that was fascinating to me is um, the, the, the quality of professionals that we have here. Uh, and uh, the, the governor, again, is very passionate about us supporting locals, uh, supporting the local government, supporting the local um, first responders, the the local emergency responders. And that's really the philosophy that we've taken here over through the governor's term and, and moving into this second or the first term and moving in the second term is really like we're not here to tell local agencies how to do their job. It's, hey, let us listen. To, to what your issues are and what problems you may be having, and then let us leverage our resources and our personnel to help you solve those problems. And that is that is the governor's philosophy on uh, really kind of how we lead in these these circumstances. Probably the most visible division within DPS is the Ohio State Highway Patrol. Yes, and that is our largest division uh, within the department. And that is, I'm sure that when people think about the Department of Public Safety, that's that's what they think about. Now, I, I spent a lot of time up in East Palestine working on the train derailment up there. And we, we spent a lot of time with the mayor and the local uh, local government officials uh, of that community. And the mayor said something that just absolutely stood out to me. I had a couple, uh, I had a couple troopers with me and he said, Look, I always thought before this incident, I always thought the troopers just sat up on the highway and wrote people tickets. That's what I that's what I thought they did. And unfortunately, I think that is a view that a lot of people have of of our troopers. And that certainly highway safety is their number one mission and their number one goal. So so getting up on the highways and, and making sure that, that people are safe up on the highways and responding to, to incidents on the highways is is what we want to do. But man, what they do day to day is is just so much more broad than that. Yeah. And the and the support that they bring to local governments and their time of need is is just it's amazing it's it's absolutely unbelievable yeah. so that's been kind of interesting and and I think as part of this part podcast we're going to go through each division we're going to talk about what what each division brings to the table and not only that but uh, issues you know absolutely. issues that that each of the divisions face issues that our, our local law enforcement and our local fo- first responders face and, and how we can work through some of those. But uh, but yeah, the, 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 the thing that has impressed me the most about the, the patrol, in addition to the quality of the people who are out there working the streets and the quality of the leadership, is uh, just how broad they are and mm-hmm. the level of assistance and support that they can bring to, to the locals. And like you said, we'll go more in depth into that in a, in a future episode. So another agency that literally just about every Ohioan has to deal with at some point is the BMV, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Now, I can tell you my last interaction was before the pandemic. And um, basically then you had to do everything in an office and you had to set aside about half a day to get your business done. But that is just not the case anymore. 
Right. And and look, the, the DeWine Houston administration has has really prided themselves on the work that, that we're doing here in BMV and, and their initiatives in BMV. And to your point, exactly. Uh, they don't want the BMV. You know, the BMV has been the traditional butt of every government joke that has ever existed. In every state. In yes. every state. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the governor and the lieutenant governor uh, obviously are aware of that. And they don't want look, they don't want themselves to have to go sit in a BMV half the day. Right. They don't want their their family, their friends, or anyone in Ohio to have to go and basically experience uh, inefficiency or uh, really waste of time mm-hmm. that uh, has, is associated with the, the history of BMVs a- across the country. So they've worked uh, unbelievably hard at um, really using technology and leveraging technology to become more efficient. As a matter of fact, and again, I know we're going to talk in depth about what each section does in later podcasts, but uh, through their innovation, uh, they have actually saved about 4.1 million trips uh, that they that they prevented where people have to, t- t- to go to the BMV to do services. So those are services that are now provided online that traditionally people would have had to go to the BMV to do. Uh, and people are exercising their option to do it online and it saved four, 4.1 million trips to, to the BMV. Not only that, but um, there's still... There's still people like my father-in-law. My father-in-law, uh, he will never uh, sign up for a license online. He I, I, just will never see that happening. I get it. Wants the human interaction. He wants the human interaction. <laughs> Look, he doesn't want to fool with, you know, uh, getting online and trying to find yeah. a website and all that mm-hmm. stuff. He still wants to go to the office. And if he has a question, he wants to be able to ask a live person in person, face-to-face uh, about the question, whatever his question is. So. There is there is a significant portion of the population still wants to be able to go. Mm-hmm. So the, the lieutenant governor and the governor, uh, through their initiatives, have have made that process even more efficient. So they have uh, they created something called Get In Line Online, which is mm-hmm. the, the best way I can equate it. And again, this is how my mind works. I just go to what I know <laughs> in my life is like call ahead seating for a restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. know, if you want to go to a restaurant <laughs> and there's like a two hour wait at your favorite restaurant, mm-hmm. you can call ahead and they can say, Hey, look, be here at you know five thirty or whatever, yeah. and you you get there at five thirty, and you may not get in right away, but but you're not having to wait two hours uh, like you know, everybody like else. everybody yeah. else. So they. <laughs> They have, and it, what I love is, it, it's really, it's really our government agencies that have been traditionally slow to react. Now looking around and being like, look, how can we make these processes better? Mm-hmm. Look, if they can do it at Texas Roadhouse, you know, why can't we do it? Uh, why can't we do it here mm-hmm. in our government agency? So, so again, the lieutenant governor and, and the governor have been really good about pushing on folks who work in the administration to be innovative and to, to come up with these solutions. So again, the the the, the get in line online, uh, we believe has, has saved about just over a half million, 535,000 hours of, of wait time. So if you look at it, the, the average wait now in a BNB. So when I say now, I'm talking March, uh, this last month, March of 2023. Mm-hmm. If you go into a BNB and you utilize, uh, you know, you either get in line online or you're the benefit of everybody else who's got online, <laughs> you know, and gotten in line, mm-hmm. um, you, the average was about 11 minutes, just over 11 minutes last month. So mm-hmm. if you go back to what you said mm-hmm. and what people traditionally think of uh, when they think of the BMV, Look, it's it's just astronomical the the the, the change that that they put into place. And look, we're not done. The, the lieutenant governor and governor, they're pushing hard in this space to be more innovative, uh, so that again, people don't have to waste their Saturday morning, their Saturday afternoon, their time off of work to to deal with running these errands. Really, is what we're talking about. Recently, I was actually with Registrar Charlie Norman up in Cleveland, um, debuting one of the many new. Uh, kiosks yes. that they're putting in, and that's cutting down time even more. I watched it in action. These things are going up in like grocery stores and, you know, really community central areas where people that are convenient for people, where people are going to be anyway. And um, I watched somebody use it and it probably took five minutes yeah. to yeah. renew a l- registration. Again, compare yeah. that to what we traditionally think of as, as government. It's just, yeah. it's just unbelievable. And, um, you know, they're, like I said, they're, they're really pushing hard 
uh, in these areas. When I say they, that the lieutenant governor and, and governor, and it's it's just it's just been great. It, it really has been great. So we're we're excited. I think one of the one of the ways you can tell we're excited is forty nine other states. So forty other forty nine other governors and lieutenant governors. I promise you, they're not out front talking about their BMV. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to Lieutenant Governor, you listen to the governor, they're very proud of, of what we've done in this space to really just increase our level of customer service. And so, so I think that's great, I, I, the, the fact that we're talking about it. The only other thing I'd talk about with respect to the BMV is when I talk about public safety, people are always like, well, why is the BMV in public <laughs> safety? And it's just a, mm-hmm. it's a historical artifact. I think it goes mm-hmm. back to, I think there was the old... Um, Office of Highway Safety, something like that from long ago where the the, the BMV uh, was there. There's a lot of, again, there's a lot of fees and, and uh, titles and records and all of that stuff that, that are related to highway safety. Uh, so I think it's just kind of this is probably the best fit for, for that agency. Another division that's within uh, DPS that is really leading the way in the nation, doing something that to my knowledge, really no other agency in the nation is doing, um, is the Ohio Narcotics Intelligence Center, yes. which was only a few years ago um, established by executive order by yes. Governor DeWine. Yes. So listen, th- this is such a great, great entity, great organization. So 2019, the governor, when he, when he came into office, obviously through his time as attorney general, he knew the issues that the state was having with, at that time, it was opiates and heroin. And so he had fought a lot of that during his time as attorney general. And and he knew that we needed to provide some resources in this area that local jurisdictions just may not have the ability to, to access. So the Narcotics Intelligence Center, these are experts. Uh, and we have four offices ac- across the state. We have one up in Cleveland. We have one in Toledo. We have one here in Columbus. And then we have one down in the northern Hamilton County area. So uh, those are our four offices. They're staffed with experts who help local law enforcement agencies deal with digital evidence. So now uh, nowadays, your, your drug dealers, your criminals are doing a lot of their work on their telephone. Even if they're not doing their overt work on the, the telephone, that telephone is picking up a lot of information about their illegal and nefarious activities. Uh, so uh, when uh, when local law enforcement agencies are doing a narcotics trafficking or narcotics investigation and they do search warrants, a lot of times they find phones, they find computers, they find uh, these devices that are really treasure troves of, of information. So we go through and we get legal process. Everything we do is is blessed off on by by court order, or search warrant, or consent. Uh, so local law enforcement gets the, the legal authority to, to get into those phones, and we have experts who can download those phones. And really, we've given our folks in the Narcotics Intelligence Center really state-of-the-art uh, equipment and software that allows them to get into these phones and then not only do are we able to download them, but we have analysts who, I mean, you, you may talk about hundreds of thousands of pictures and texts and just all of this data that are in these phones uh, that would take a detective hours, weeks, months to go through. We have analysts who will, will do that for them. And then they produce a product for the local detective that really reads like a book. Hey, look, here's who, here's here's your drug dealer. Here's who they're selling to. Here's who they're getting it from. And oh, by the way, what we found is uh, a lot of the folks who are doing this kind of narcotics trafficking uh, are the same folks who are trafficking guns, the same folks who are sh- involved in shootings in communities. So we're then able to, a lot of times, give the detectives information about shootings or gun trafficking, gun violence in, in their community that they probably knew about but didn't have the direct draw. So um, it, it, it's a great initiative. This is something the governor created. This is a, a governor created because he knew he knew or he realized, understood the importance of providing this type of information to the local law enforcement agencies. And he also knew that a lot of agencies just don't have the funding, the resources, or the personnel to do it. So by us having these teams of experts that do this work for a lot of agencies, it allows those agencies to have their detectives on the street 
responding to calls, knocking on doors, doing the traditional detective work uh, that they do. So it's it's such a, it's a force multiplier in these types of investigations, and they're doing incredible work. Not only that, mm-hmm. but they they also do a lot of research on emerging drug trends. So they're sharing a lot of information with schools, with community groups, with parents about uh, what's going on in their communities with respect to drugs. So we just, they just put out something on emojis and hey, look, if you see these type of emojis or your kids using these types of emojis, it could be related to drug activity, so. And um, those emerging drug trends that they recognize, you know, just a few days ago, actually, the the White House issued a um, an alert about xylazine, but Onik identified xylazine as an emerging drug a long time ago, and what the information they found sparked Governor DeWine to take action Absolutely. on xylazine. And, and that's that's why we have this. So so we were picking up that xylazine was an issue. The, mm-hmm. When I say we, the Onik and the, the folks in the streets were picking up that xylazine was an issue because we were on it, because we noticed it, because the Onik was paying attention to it. They were able to alert and, and work with pharmacy and the vet folks and get it in front of the governor. The governor, again, his dedication to public safety is second to none. He realized the threat and the danger. He took immediate action. We got it scheduled a, a couple weeks uh, ahead of the feds yeah. taking action yep. on it. So, sure and I think at this point, I think maybe only one other state has actually taken action on it. So mm-hmm. that that's the kind of information and, and data that that our Narcotics Intelligence Center, working with our other agencies and the local partners, were able to pay attention to, understand, and elevate to the level of governor so that he can make the choices that he needs to make to protect the citizens of Ohio. Another division that really, you know, talking about helping local departments, Office of Criminal Justice Services, they do some really important work. Look, they, they do they do great work. And the majority of law enforcement agencies in Ohio uh, know about the Office of Criminal Justice Services because they they work with them on on grant funding, and that is the primary role of the Office of Criminal Justice Services. Uh, they pass through grants to local law enforcement agencies so that those agencies can do what they need to protect their citizens. And really, the the governor again has been very active with his criminal justice initiatives, and we have we have funded a lot of those initiatives through the Office of Criminal Justice Services and through those uh, through those grants. And I think since the governor came into office, I think the number is right around $255 million worth of grant funding that the Office of Criminal Justice Services has put out on the streets directly to our law enforcement agencies to help them address their specific needs. Again, we don't tell them how they have to spend the money. We say, hey, look, tell us what your specific needs to your specific community is and let us come in and help. And that's where the Office of Criminal Justice Services has been absolutely key in, in putting some of that money out. Another thing that they, they've done a lot of work in is is they've helped through with recruiting and retention grants. You know, the, the number one issue, and, and we'll do a whole episode on this, I'm sure, one of the number one issues that our law enforcement agencies and our first responder agencies are facing is just the ability to staff, you know, to, to recruit people in. It's hard to get people in and it's hard to keep people in. And it's such, again, it's such a noble, it's such an honorable profession. Uh, we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to, to help those agencies get the people that they, they need in. So the, the Office of Criminal Justice Services, in addition to the grant funding, we also have researchers who do a lot of our criminal justice research and criminal justice statistics work uh, here in Ohio. We have uh, the, uh, the Community Police Collaborative that, that works out of the Office of Criminal Justice Services, which is just a great initiative. And uh, we're going to do, I, again, I'm sure we'll do an episode on this, but one of the initiatives they're going to move into is they're going to develop an accreditation program for law enforcement agencies across the state. So that's going to that's basically going to be a, a spinoff or the next iteration or the next movement of what the the collaborative is doing. And, and really, what we want to do is just say, hey, look, these are the best standards. These are the best practices in law enforcement. Let's let's do our best to get agencies uh, on board with them. Now, there there are agencies out there who are already accredited through the national accreditation, which is CALEA, which is really kind of the gold standard. But uh, there are a lot of agencies that can't afford uh, to, to, to do a CLIA certification. So we, what we will provide will be free for those, those agencies. Again, this is just some of the innovative work in addition 
to the office to to the grant work that the Office of Criminal Justice Services is doing. They also have, you know, the the our human trafficking uh, task force. So they they do a lot of work in the human trafficking area. So it, again, it's just another one of those divisions that does all types of amazing work that we want to highlight uh, for the folks of Ohio. You're a parent. I'm a parent and a grandparent, and I know nothing is more important to me than making sure that that our kids are safe when they're at school. And the Ohio School Safety Center is focused on that. And um, I believe it might be the fastest growing. It's like growing exponentially right now. It is. It mm-hmm. is. So when when the governor came into office, and I told I already told you about uh, becoming appointed as the, the Senior Advisor for Criminal Justice uh, Policy, within the first three to four weeks of his administration, he sat me down with with the criminal justice node or the criminal justice group and said hey look or the public safety group and he said hey look i don't think we're doing a good i I, i'm not convinced that we're doing as well as we could to keep our kids safe and i'm worried that that we're just not doing it effectively and efficiently and i want you to go out and i want you to see what we're doing let's let's do an audit of what we're doing across the state to protect our kids in in schools so we put a team together and we really kind of looked at what we're doing and, and lo and behold, he, he was right. You know, a lot of the stuff that was being done in this space was siloed. It was disjointed. There weren't coordinated efforts. There weren't good open lines of communication between the different agencies that were tasked. And there were just a lot of gaps and a lot of areas where we could improve. So we went back to the governor. He actually sent us out to, to a a working group in Minnesota with a national agency where we did a conference or a working committee on school safety. We worked with other experts in the field out there. We came back and you know, told him what we had talked about out there and what some other states were doing. And he said, hey, look, I, I want, and this was early in the administration, I want us, when, when it comes to school safety, I want us to have a dedicated group of experts whose only job every day is to get up come to work and think about how to keep our kids safe. So that was the genesis for the Ohio School Safety Center. And by the time by the time we had done that, the first budget period was already over. So we, we missed the first budget, but the former director, Tom Stickrath, was able to move internal resources here at Public Safety around to create the first iteration of the School Safety Center. So he did that, he moved some people around in Homeland Security and really, uh, what we did pretty quickly is uh, we established tip, the, the tip line and tip line monitoring. We did uh, social media scanning. So uh, we, we have software and we have people who are constantly m- monitoring social media for threats, specific threats against schools or specific keyword uh, threats uh, against schools. We, and th- then it's just exploded since then. It was, it was so well received and was such a good service that um, you know, we, we do behavioral threat assessment. We, do, um, we help schools you know, basically with their physical security and, and making sure that they have what they need there. The governor and the General Assembly have put you know, millions and millions of dollars into uh, upgrading schools and the physical security of schools. And we have regional teams that, that consult uh, with schools on their emergency response planning. And it's just, it's such a great asset to, to those schools. And it's, uh, it's really been neat to, to watch that. And, and we think, again, that, that that'll continue to grow as we work with the, the experts. And, and the other thing that's interesting, too, is it's not just, it's not just, a critical incident. It's not just planning for, hey, what if there's an attack in a school or something like that. It really, our experts work with the schools on the behavioral climate within the school and and setting up conditions to avoid the best the best way to deal with an incident at a school is to prevent it before it ever happens. They have a big focus on mental health. They do. Yeah. They, they do. And they do such a good job in that space. And again, we're, it's another division. We'll, we'll talk about <laughs> them in other sections, but mm-hmm. it's, it's another division that the, the governor created within public safety. And talking about threat assessment, I mean, that's what the Department of Homeland Security is all about. Yes. Yeah. So they do a lot of work 
they can't talk about though. <laughs> they, they they do. They, so they do a lot of they do a lot of good work. Um, you know, obviously we have uh, the the stack, which is our our anti terrorism and, and crime center, and they they are constantly monitoring threats, um, not only to the state but national threats, and and they're pushing the, that information out to first responders and, and law enforcement. They have analysts over there who are doing that threat assessment work uh, for us. So they, they do incredible work there and with the other fusion centers in the state. Uh, we have in, in Homeland Security, we have critical infrastructure specialists. So that's one of the areas that we're pushing on really hard right now. We want to make sure that our local government agencies uh, are confident that the critical infrastructure they have in their county, their township, their city is safe and it's not vulnerable, and, and we want to come in and help them uh, with, with that. We do a lot of preventative planning type work. Uh, it's, a, it's a great section, and I, I think we're going to continue to expand on the work we do in uh, threat analysis and, and behavioral threat analysis. I, I think that's an area where we can provide value added to our local partners. Look, if you've got somebody making a threat, somebody that you're worried about, we should have a team of experts that come in and do an assessment for you to tell you, hey, look, this this is what we know based on prior threats, prior, uh, prior incidents, and this is the action we would suggest you take. Another threat facing Ohioans um, come to, comes from Mother Nature. Um, it's not even officially tornado season, I think, and we've already had an extreme number of, of tornadoes hit the state. And emergency management yes. um, is, is right there to help Ohioans deal with it and get through it and, and prepare for them. Fire, flood, storms, man-made disasters, uh, emergency management. What we say about emergency management is they are there working with Ohioans on what often is the, the Ohioans' worst day of their life. And a lot of times these are situations where uh, the, the, the Ohioan has lost you know, property. They may have lost their house. They may have lost um, you know, everything they own. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes they may have lost family, friends, neighbors. And it's, it's our emergency management agency that comes in and helps them really in what maybe their their greatest time of need and I've, I've had the opportunity uh, to work you know my, my background as I said is criminal justice and in policing um, but I've really probably worked with emergency management more than anybody else uh, because of the East Palestine train derailment sure. and they they were up there you know for weeks and weeks uh, helping to, to manage that that incident up there so you know they are experts at what they do and it's really fascinating to, to watch them to come into a situation and coordinate. Really what they do is coordinate resources and help manage those resources and make sure that people in need are getting to the resources that they need and that the first responders are getting the resources that they need as well. I, I used this analogy the other day when I was talking, to, uh, talking about emergency management. Um, they're not really the quarterback because in, in Ohio and really the, the, the way these incidents are, are the way we respond to them. Really, they're, they're local incidents. And the, the, the local first responders, uh, the, the surrounding, the regional first responders, they're the ones who really are in charge. They're the incident commander. Um, so emergency management is not necessarily a quarterback. They're, they're, they're like a team manager. They're like a good team manager is the way I look at it. And they, they just make sure that all the equipment, all the resources, everything is taken care of so that we can effectively respond and effectively manage these terrible incidents. Now, another big part of what they do that we don't get to see as much, and if we're doing it right, we should never see, is disaster prevention mm-hmm. and uh, disaster mitigation, really. And that is, they, they, we, we do such a good job in the state of getting out and helping, making sure that, that, that our communities are prepared for and at least aware of what their vulnerabilities may be and have good plans so that if a crisis does come, everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And when those crises do happen, um, some of those first responders are firefighters and paramedics, EMTs, um, and which all comes under emergency medical services. Yes. So Mm -hmm. we also have the division of EMS here. The division of EMS um, is interesting. They're responsible for really the certification 
mm-hmm. making sure that, that our folks are certified, standards are upheld, uh, not just of our, our paramedics, our, our EMS providers, but also of the, the folks who do the training. Mm-hmm. So they, they certify the, the schools. And then another thing that, that our EMS division does, it's incredibly important, especially to our smaller agencies, our volunteer agencies, is we do a lot of grant work. We, we put a lot of grants out. Uh, and they're usually small equipment grants, but they, they become critical to these agencies that don't have a lot of money. So again, it may be a defibrillator, it may be a, a backboard, it may be a critical piece, whatever, whatever these agencies need, a lot of times uh, we're able to come in and help out with some of this grant funding. Uh, again, just to make sure that they have the equipment and the resources so that when you need them, they're fully staffed. And the ninth division under uh, Department of Public Safety is the Traffic Safety Office. Yes. And they do a lot of great work, too. They, they really do. Listen, uh, I talked about Governor DeWine and, and his passion for public safety. Uh, he, you won't find a governor probably, again, in the history of Ohio, probably in the nation, that is as focused on traffic safety. And he, the Governor DeWine is passionate about keeping Ohioans safe on our roads and highways. And then there's a lot of, there's a lot of elements that go into that. And, you know, uh, some of that's the, the physical safety of the roads, you know, making sure that the roads are safe to drive on. That really falls under ODOT, uh, the Department of Transportation. But there's also the, the behaviors uh, mm-hmm. of people when they're driving. We need our people to, to be safe when they're driving. And that falls under the, the, the highway patrol and some of the stuff that we're doing legislatively here in Ohio. And then there's another part that is driver's training. And again, I can tell you wholeheartedly, the, the, the governor thinks we need to do a better job in Ohio in how we do driver's education. And we, we're really working hard in that space, and that's the Ohio Traffic Safety Office, where we're really working hard in that space right now to, to rethink how we do it and can we do it better. And, and look, our kids... It's not just a safety issue. It's a it's a workforce development issue. You know, yeah. our, we know we know without a doubt that the studies show that young drivers who go through driver's education end up being safer drivers. So so we need to number one get our kids into driver's education. And we need them to go through. And the way it works in Ohio right now is once you're over 18, you don't have to take driver's ed. If you're over 18, you can just go take the test. And we know again the studies show that those are less safe drivers. So so how can we do a better job of getting our kids into driver's ed, making driver's ed, removing some of the barriers that, that keep kids from getting in driver's ed, and then making that driver's training the best training it can be. And the, the, the governor just doesn't think that our kids are getting enough really quality driving time. And what that looks like in the end, I don't know, but I can tell you what, he, in this last term, he's passionate about uh, really making our roads and our drivers as safe as they can be. Well, Director, we've really just kind of scratched the surface of all the great work that, that happens here at the Department of Public Safety. Um, I believe you'll be hosting the next episode of Safe and Sound. Um, what can we look forward to in these future future episodes? Listen, what, what's, what's fascinating about the Department of Public Safety is there's just so much that we do throughout the state to keep Ohioans safe. And we're really excited about highlighting what some of that looks like. You know, we're gonna talk about each one of these divisions. We're gonna talk about what the division does. We're gonna bring in guests who are touched by the, the, the divisions, but we're gonna, we're gonna take it more broad. We're, we're going to talk about issues that are important to public safety, to our first responders uh, in all areas of the profession. So again, wellness, you know, we're gonna talk wellness. We're gonna talk recruiting. We're gonna talk retention. We're gonna talk about different initiatives. There, there really are a lot of, a lot of different areas that we're gonna cover on how we keep Ohioans safe and what's important in the public safety space. We're really excited about showcasing uh, safety in Ohio and how we all work together, not just here at public safety, but with the local first responders, the local uh, police, the, the, the local sheriffs, and, and obviously the patrol, what everybody does to, to keep Ohioans safe. Director Andy Wilson, thank you so much for your time and the opportunity to get to know you better. Carol, thank you. It's been it's been great, and we're we're really excited. Looking forward to to sharing uh, more information about public safety. We also want to thank our listeners for taking the time to learn more about how the Ohio Department of Public Safety keeps you safe and sound. Mm-hmm.